Good morning. How is everyone? Great. It's good to be here. Missed you guys. I want to start this morning by asking a question. Okay? Have you ever been having a conversation with someone? And it doesn't take long to realize that this person is paying no attention to you whatsoever. You ask a question based on the content of what you've just poured out of your soul. And you see this person in a squirmish way groping for something, anything, that they can cling to to connect to everything that you've just said, but they can't because they just weren't listening. Doctor of Psychology James Snikowski helps us understand why. He says this, Hearing takes place when something disturbs the atmosphere and that disturbance takes the form of pressure waves that strike our eardrums as sound. It's the way we perceive sound. Listening is different. Listening expands on hearing when we pay attention to the meaning of what we hear. For example, a truck just rolled by on the front of the road of my house. I heard the noisy rumble, knew what it was, and after that paid no attention whatsoever. That's what we do when we're merely hearing the words someone else is speaking. They're just vibrations in the atmosphere. We nod, we smile, and perhaps we even respond. But are we listening? Hardly. Why? Because listening requires that we open ourselves to the meaning of the other person's words. That we, in a very real way, enter into the experience that those words are meant to convey. It's no longer just about the thoughts, feelings, point of view, expectations, memories, sensations, beliefs. It's about the whole of the other person, or at least as much of the whole as is available in the moment. Now listen to this. The most important quality of listening is that you allow yourself to step aside and be mindful of the other person's experience. That doesn't mean that you have to abandon your own point of view. You merely set it aside for the time you are listening so that you can be available to what wants to be communicated. Now, a couple of thoughts are invoked here. Number one, what I feel that this guy is saying is that listening is something that can be learned. The ability to step aside and be mindful of another person's experience is something that we can learn with a bit of effort. And I don't know, but that's good news for people like me. I am actually having a conversation with a gentleman at work, and he begins to talk about his hunting experience the day prior, 
and my mind immediately goes and takes off on my own expedition. I have a Walter Mitty moment where I'm completely lost and completely having my own experience. I'm drawn back into the conversation when I realize that he's asking me a question and I have no idea about anything that he's just said. The reality is this. I think we can all identify with the need to be more active in our listening. And if that's a truth on a day-to-day basis and in human-to-human relationships, I'm wondering how much more that is relevant in our day-to-day communications with who God is. Because I think the reality is, if we're struggling to be active in our listening on a horizontal level, I think that could be a little bit of an indication that we may be struggling being active in our listening on a vertical level as well. That's a part of what we want to explore today as we open our Bibles, please, to John chapter 1. We're going to finish out the, we're going to finish out chapter 1 today. John chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 35 through 51. John chapter 1, 35 through 51. Jesus calls the first disciples. It's going to be relevant. It's a foundation for what we're going to talk about today. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? Not a direct answer to the question. He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael come toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. 
And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Our emphasis today will be verses 35 through 42. I read the rest of it for context. But let's begin by praying. Father, as we come to you this morning, Lord, our... Well, first and foremost, God, we want to acknowledge why it is that we are able to even come to you this morning and approach you. We acknowledge that, God, we are covered. We acknowledge that we are clothed. We acknowledge that we're comforted because of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Our Savior, our friend, our spiritual brother, So we first acknowledge that in our cry, our plea, our request, God, is very simple. Father, we need clarity. We need application. We need conviction. We need comforted. So, Lord, our request is that you would be faithful to your word, that you would receive glory, and that, God, you would do, that you would complete what it is that you're desiring to do in the hearts and the lives of your people, all of which is for your glory. So help us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about the beginnings of discipleship. And there's three principles that I want to pull out, and they're all under that banner of the beginnings of discipleship. I want to talk to you about the priority of perception, chiefly the priority of listening. I want to talk to you about the necessity of relationship. And I want to talk to you this morning about the importance of a new identity. We've learned a lot thus far. We've learned of Christ as God in the flesh. We've learned about last week the witness of John the Baptist. And today we see the way that God interacts initially with man. It's going to be very relevant for us. So let's talk about the priority of perception, specifically listening. As we look at verses 35 and 37 again, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. I don't want you to be mistaken about the statement, the beginnings of discipleship. I'm not suggesting that there's something that takes place in the beginnings of our relationship with Christ that we move on from or that we move away from. The beginnings of discipleship are likened to the beginnings of a courtship relationship between a man and a woman because in the beginnings of that relationship, things like love are developed. Trust is cultivated and produced as a priority, but yet at the same time, they are maintained throughout the entirety of that relationship. So I don't want you to think that we are going to move on from anything. We don't, we don't move on from what we've learned today. Prayerfully, we take it with us throughout the entirety of this beautiful letter, but more importantly than that, prayerfully, we carry it with us throughout the entirety of our lives. So the question that I want to ask this morning is, who are you in the context 
of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Who are you, what are you, in comparison to what Christ has designated you to be regarding your relationship with Christ? Because God has done a very grand job of designating our role. God has not designate us, designated us to be a people that are to seek to be religious, that are to seek to be intellectual, that are to seek to be innovative or charismatic or full of wit. God has designated us to be a people who seek to find their complete contentment, their complete satisfaction and joy, their complete identity, and that's huge, in a discipleship relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. A relationship where I'm submitting myself to the teachings of the Savior. But why? Why are we given to that idea of entering into a loving, learning relationship with God where He invests in me and I learn from Him? Why are we so given to that idea? Is it so that God can invest in me and I can learn from Him and then in turn do grand and memorable things for the kingdom of God? Do I enter into this relationship desiring to learn with longing because the continent of Africa needs saved and I'm the man? Do I enter into this relationship for a better understanding of the reality of sin that sometimes, maybe more often than not, defines my life and I need to have a right fixation on the Lamb of God who can actually do something about that. That's what we want to talk about today. And that's why I believe that John the Baptist, he highlights the beginning of discipleship as the need to listen. Not just hear, but to listen. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Doesn't it make sense that I'm called, we're called, to enter into a relationship where we're learning from our Master and we're taking the teachings that are imparted to us and we're applying those teachings to our lives so that our lives are defined by the very teachings that are imparted to us, it only makes sense that we would be listeners. As a matter of fact, in order to be a learner, we must be listeners. I'm taking management courses at work. And there's a common thread that I'm seeing that's woven through every module that I'm completed in order to be an effective manager in relation to people. And the common thread is this. If you are going to be an effective manager of people, first and foremost, you must be an active listener. Because through active listening, you gain an insight and an inlet into that person. You, you discover what their makeup is. You discover who they are, what their dreams are, so that you can take that information and you can begin to mold them and shape them. You have to be an active listener, even if their substance really isn't that much. Now, if we're called to be an active listener on a day-to-day -day basis in human-to-human relationships with people, on a higher level, 
How much more do we need to listen to God who never speaks without substance, who never speaks without any type of purpose? That's why John initially, immediately, he places a priority on perception with a great emphasis. What is perception? What is that? What does it mean? It means that we become aware of something that maybe we weren't previously aware of through our senses, through hearing, through seeing. How does John focus us in that direction? Well, he starts by doing that in verse 36. Look at that with me when he says this. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. It's a lot packaged in those few words. The day prior, John had stated, Behold the Lamb of God that does something. What's he do? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So this next day, when John says, Behold the Lamb of God, the fact that He takes away the sins of the world is automatically, obviously implied. So just in that very simple word, when John says, Behold, that is a call to stop what we are doing at the moment to make the necessary changes in order to see what it is that John is pointing out at that very second. As a matter of fact, when John the Baptist says, Behold, it is a call not only to his disciples, but it's a call to all of those who have been extended the grace to be able to become a listener and sit under at the feet of Jesus Christ. This is a call to all disciples of all time to prioritize the structure of their lives. Not only that we would not miss Him, but that we would not miss the emphasis of the work of the Lamb of God. Do not miss this. He takes away sins. Don't miss that. And in verse 37, when the disciples heard Him say this, they did what? They followed Him. So what did it take for them to follow Him? They had to had to hear. They had to listen. They had to get what He was saying. Now I think it's important to note that the word heard in verse 37 is the same Greek word that's used in Mark 9-7 when the Father says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. The word listen. It's a present tense action verb. It's God's way of saying, listen, and listen, and listen, and listen, and listen, and listen to Him. It means continually listen. As a matter of fact, it seems as if God the Father Himself is helping shape what a discipleship relationship looks like, and what our role in that relationship is. What's my role in this discipleship relationship? Listen, and listen, and listen, and listen, and listen. That's our role. The word heard, listen, or a form is used 427 times in the New Testament. And it doesn't only mean to give an ear to a teacher or to give an ear to a teaching, it carries with it the idea and the reference of obeying what it is that the teacher has to say. Listen, we all remember those days. You remember when the teacher or your parents said, Brian, why are you not listening to what I said? Did you not listen to what I just told you? What is she really saying? She's really saying, 
Why aren't you obeying me? That's what she's really saying. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Listen, beloved, that statement, that declaration requires an obedient response from the sinner as well as from the saint. If you are lost, if you do not know the person of Jesus Christ, you are called to respond to, to interact with that declaration that the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world because your sins need covered. If you're here and you're a believer, you are called to obediently Respond to that declaration that He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You're called to interact with that declaration because if you are here and you are a believer, your sins need conquered. Our sins either need covered or our sins either need conquered. And that's why John places such a priority on us. Listening, we need to be reminded of that specific message over and over and over. He places such an emphasis on that message that he spends two days repeating it. Not only because it's a message worth repeating, but because it's a message that we are so prone to wander away from because we think that there are bigger and better things that can be said. There's not. Through John's declaration, we need to have ears to hear this. Through that declaration, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Listen, we need to have ears to hear and listen to our need. Hear this. Hear this. Discipleship is primarily for our need. Not for a need that we may think Christ has for us. I know that we can be tempted to think that entering into a discipleship relationship is because of what Christ wants me to do or maybe, <laughs> foolishly, what He needs me to do for the sake of others. A discipleship is a learner. A disciple is a listener, not as a favor to God. A disciple is a learner as a favor to himself. A man is not a pupil that sits under Christ because of the great things that he thinks he can do because of what he's learned. A man is primarily a disciple because of the corruption of his own heart that constantly needs redirection, reorientation, and loving confrontation. And that's the reason that John points to Christ as our greatest need. Not what you can do, what you need. John Piper states the following when he says this. Following Jesus is not heroic. I need to stop right there. <laughs> Don't we at times turn following Christ into something heroic? I mentioned uh, the salvation of Africa intentionally. One of the last trips I went to in Ghana, West Africa, the gentleman that had been our guide for so many years, he said, I need to share a vision that I have with you. Okay, share the vision. The vision is, Moon, I saw the throne of God hovering over Ghana, West Africa, and fire was shooting from Ghana into all of the other nations in Africa. 
And as God allowed me closer access to the throne room of God, I saw an angel hovering over that throne room. And as I got, it's funny. (laughs) And as I got even closer to the throne room of God, I saw that the angel was you. Moon, God's going to use you to change the continent of Africa. So all of a sudden, in my ignorance and in my arrogance, following Christ is something that's becoming heroic to me. Look at what I'm going to do for Christ. How foolish and on the verge of embarrassing is that? Following Christ begins to be about something that I can do for Christ. But John Piper says, following Jesus is not heroic. We follow Him not the way David's mighty men followed Him to serve Him as their revered sovereign, small s. No. We follow Him the way sheep follow the shepherd because we need to be protected. We need to have our sins forgiven. We are weak and He is strong. We are foolish and He is wise. We are hungry and He is our bread. We are thirsty, and He is our living water. Following Jesus calls attention to His strength, not ours. His goodness, not ours. His wisdom, not ours. That's what John the Baptist wants us to hear through His declaration. That's the beginnings of discipleship. Behold the Lamb of God who will take away your sins and put you in a right standing with God. You need Him. He doesn't need you. Now go follow Him. But go follow Him based upon your need. Now, I want to suggest something as we prepare to transition into this next thought. I want to suggest that these two disciples, they don't fully get that yet. I want to know, I want you to note that they're following somewhat from a distance. As a matter of fact, Jesus has to stop. He has to turn. They're behind him. They're not up close and intimate with him. Now, I take that to mean that there's a gap that's existing between them and the Savior because they're following him on the trail of the declaration of another man. They're following Him on the trail of the declaration of their previous Master, John the Baptist. We do not, cannot have a relationship with Christ based upon the confession of someone else. We have to personally be committed to listening to Christ through a relationship. We have to personally be committed to listening to Christ before we can hear Christ in a way that we can be responsive to Christ. That's why in the beginnings of discipleship, there's also the necessity of a relationship. Let's look at verses 37 through 39. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Jesus doesn't say, who are you seeking? He says, what are you, what are you doing? What are you seeking? What are you wanting? We don't know. Where are you staying? 
He said to them, come and you will see. The very first time that we hear the Savior speak in the Gospel of John, He's reaching out and trying to grab the heart of a man. The very first time that we hear Him speak. Now that Greek word for seek allows us to paraphrase or rephrase His question a couple of different ways. What is it that you worship? What is it that you treasure? What is it really that you're looking for in the deepest parts of your heart? What is it that you're really wanting out of life? And I want to suggest this morning that that question is very intentional because it forces us to explore and determine what the sole object and the sole passion of our lives really are. Christ is calling us and pressing us to articulate with much clarity what it is that we really want out of life. You see, the question's not for Him. He's not asking the question because He needs to know. He's asking the question to help us identify where we are and what it is that we're really wanting and seeking out of this life. And you know what? Immediately, initially, the two disciples can't answer that question. Now, I believe that their following, even though it's from a distance, is a suggestion that they're looking, they're wanting, they're seeking. But right now, at this point, they cannot answer that question, and maybe you can't either. I think that if I were to try to answer that question, this is a meditation question. Jason, what is it that you really worship in this life? Hamlet, where is your treasure really? Ken, what is it that you're really seeking out of this life? I don't think that it would even be wise to attempt to answer that question very quickly because it demands a lot of thought. But for them and for us, the process remains the same. We're a people that are marred by sin still. The process remains the same, and it's this. Jesus reveals the beauty of Himself in a relationship. And when He begins to reveal the beauty of who He is as seen in the cross, that in itself helps shape our answer. He begins to help shape our answer by revealing Himself in a relationship. And I want you to know, beloved, that He turned to you specifically for that very purpose. The Bible says that Jesus turned. The word turned is a Greek word that means to turn around completely. It means to change completely. It's the same Greek word used in Matthew 18.3 when Jesus said, unless you are converted, unless you change completely, unless you turn around completely and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Oftentimes we think of conversion as that thing that we do. And although we make a turnaround, and although we make a change, I want you to note from the outset that the only way that is possible is because God is first converting Himself toward us. He is first converting, moving, and directing Himself and directing His love toward us. And by turning toward us and converting His love toward us and moving His affections toward us, He introduces us to the strongest force in existence in order to draw us into a relationship with Himself. And it is the beauty of His own personality. It's the beauty of His own Character that is realized ultimately 
through the beauty of the cross. And you may say, the cross is anything but beautiful. It's a bloody, brutal mess. Augustine asks, who are we to determine what is beautiful and what is ugly? Who are we to determine that? Listen, it was the joy set before Christ to go to the cross and bring many sons to glory. Therefore, it is indeed beautiful. It is that place where the self-giving love of God is highlighted for us on our behalf. Therefore, beloved, the cross is indeed beautiful. Sam Storms helps us to identify the necessity of a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. And I don't want you to detach that idea from the previous proclamation of beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They actually flow very well together. They, they accompany one another. Why do we need... Why, why is this relationship necessary? Sam Storms helps us understand why. He says, we are not going to simply wake up one morning and discover that we suddenly hate what we used to love. The things of this world will never appear as dung when viewed in and of themselves. They will smell good and taste good and feel good and bring satisfaction and we will treasure and value them and fight for them and work for them and find every excuse imaginable to get them at any and all cost. They will retain their magnetic appeal and allure and power until they are set against the surpassing value and beauty of Christ Jesus. I believe what Sam Storms is accurately doing is he is introducing us, and maybe unknowingly, but he's introducing us to one of the dangers of not finding a relationship with Christ necessary. I believe the greatest danger of not being relational with the person of Jesus Christ is the beauty of Christ becomes very vague to us. The glory of the gospel becomes very abstract to us. It's confined, the beauty of Christ becomes confined to our heads and yet so far away from our hearts. It's like C.S. Lewis stated, it's like the scent of a flower, but the flower itself is missing. And we can identify with that idea, I think. We can identify with the beauty of the flower itself being overshadowed by our sins, by our busyness, by our perspectives, by our circumstances. We even see that in the life of John the Baptist who has just made the most beautiful and relevant declaration that's ever been heard in human ears. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then we fast forward a little bit and we read something that suggests doubt. Matthew 11, verses 1-4. through 4. When Jesus had finished Instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by His disciples and said to Him, Are you the one 
who is to come? Or shall we look for another? The man who has just made the greatest declaration that anybody could ever hear because Christ is not functioning and maneuvering and working and ministering the way that He thinks a Messiah would look like when He's working, ministering, causes Him to be overshadowed and consumed with doubt. Listen, that is humanity revealed, beloved. That is humanity revealed and we quickly find ourselves being the ones asking, is He, are you really the one? Are you really the one that can save my marriage? Are you really the one that can deliver me from this guilt of sin? Are you really the one that can heal this broken relationship? Are you really the one that can deliver me from the guilt of this divorce or the guilt of this abortion? Are you really the one that can take away the sins of the world? I think the issue is we believe that He can take away the sins of the world. We find it harder to believe sometimes that He'll take away our sins. We find it harder to believe sometimes that He will come and deal directly with our sins. And it's when we're questioning, when we're wavering, when we're wondering, this passage of Scripture reaches out like a lifeline. It brings us back into reality. Not ours. Not our reality. But God's reality. And in the context of a relationship, Christ says, when we say, can you? Will you? I don't know what I'm seeking. Christ says, listen, come and see. Come and see. Enter in, come and see. Now, I want to suggest that the word see isn't just about come and look at where I'm staying. Come and see means come and gain spiritual sight. Come in and be with me and see a right for the very first time in your life. Come in and be engrossed and captured by a new love. Come in, enter in, and be defined by a new passion. Listen, beloved, when we talk about the beginnings of discipleship, may we never think that we're moving on to another stage and leaving this stage behind. Linsky states, to come, to see, to abide with Jesus has well been called an epitome of the entire Christian life. Let me ask you a quick question. Do you know where to go to do that? Where do you go to come and see? Uh, uh, where do you go? Where do we go to hear? Where do we go to see? Where do we go to be relational with Christ? What about God's Word? What about God's Word? Silence and solitude, meditation on God's Word. I think the place that we have to run to in order to come and see, in order to come and taste, I think it has to be God's Word. Not a riverbank. A riverbank's not authoritative. Not in the woods. The woods aren't, the woods, the woods aren't infallible. We don't run to Rembrandt's painting of the paint of the prodigal son because that may not necessarily be sound doctrine. But the place that we know we go to come and see, is God's very Word. Side note, but not really. The last thing that I want to point out, which is extremely relevant in relation to the beginnings of discipleship, is the foundation and the importance of a new identity. 
Look in verses 40 with me. Start there. Verses 40 through 41. 40, 40 through 42. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus with Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. That may be a little familiar to us as we are introduced to Peter. We're introduced to a name change. We fast forward a little bit and we go to Matthew 16 and we see Jesus asking his disciples, Okay, who do you guys say that I am? At which point Peter responds and says, You are the Christ the Messiah, the Son of the living God. As a matter of fact, that's a very similar confession to the one that John has just made. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then when Peter makes that confession, Jesus answers and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So when Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church, he's not talking about Peter. He's talking about the confession that Peter makes because the Greek word for rock that Jesus uses is Petra, and it means immovable rock. A rock that cannot be upset. A rock that cannot be moved. A rock that cannot be overturned. While the Greek word for Peter is not Petra, but Petros, which means rock, but it's a movable rock. It's a rock that is easily moved. It is a rock that is easily detached. The differentiation is very relevant because we need to know that Peter is not the rock, but Peter is a rock that composes the church. Something beautiful is happening. And although these words were spoken directly to Peter, we are being introduced to the mystery of the gospel. And the mystery of the gospel is that God gives each one of us a new identity as well as a new purpose. Kingdom purposes. Eternal purposes. There's something to be said about the identity of a person. A psychological study was done And on the average, in America, every time that a child hears their name used in a positive sense, for every one time that happens, 11 times they hear their name used in a negative sense. So in other words, for each one time that little Susie hears, well done. Susie, you're so smart. Susie, you are so pretty. Susie, thank you for your help. For every one time that little Susie hears that, 11 times she hears, Susie, I cannot believe that you would be that stupid. Susie, I cannot believe that you're acting, you're acting just like your mother. Or father. Susie, what's wrong with you? And what we need to know is that 11 to 1 ratio, that begins to shape our perspectives of who we are. Look, at some point, I really do begin to believe 
my high school teacher who says, you're never going to be anything other than a ditch digger. At some point, I begin to believe my dad who says, you know what, you can't do anything right. And then, and then Jesus comes along in the beginnings of discipleship, and he renames us. Something to be said about, about our identity. I was, several years ago, uh, a good friend of ours. We were talking to her, Angela and I, and I was sharing with her that I had been a Christian, that I had become a Christian. Excuse me. And and great friend, high school friend, she's a black girl. And when I told her that, she said, Oh, Lord, there must have been all kinds of demons coming at you. <laughs> now, listen, she's identifying me. And what she's saying is, if you wouldn't have told me that you're a new creature or a new identity, I would come to the conclusion that those demons still define you. It shapes the perspective of who we are. It defines us. So God comes along in the beginnings of discipleship and He renames us. He doesn't rename us based on who we previously were. He doesn't rename us based upon what we've previously done. He renames us based upon who we can and will be in Him. Who are you? You're no longer a fisherman. You're no longer a Galilean. You are now a pillar in the church. You are now a pillar in the community of believers. You're no longer a drug addict. You're no longer an adulteress. You're no longer a drunkard. You're no longer a prostitute. You are who Christ says you are when He came to you and when He rescued you and when He saved you. That's who you are. That's the new identity that you have in Christ. We were in India. The last time I was in India, we had an evangelistic meeting. People came to Christ. The next day, we're baptizing people. So our guide brings these people that had confessed Christ to us and said, you have to rename these people. It was like ten people. He says, you've got to give them new names. And I said, what do you mean? He said, listen, you have to give these people new names because a new name for these people are going to suggest a new beginning and a new identity for their lives. And so we gave, <laughs> we're renaming people. We're giving them biblical names because of the value that that placed on them. I think it's important in the beginnings of discipleship to realize that our identity is one of newness. Augustine was walking through a very busy Roman street after his conversion. On the other side, there's a woman walking along in the opposite direction that he had previously had a relationship with. And she cries out, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is I. And as he runs hard in the opposite direction, he cries out, but it is no longer I. Because that's what a new identity does. It takes us in the opposite directions of who we were. And if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And we need to know from the outset, creation is a work that is restricted and reserved for God alone. The woman at the well needed to know that old things, all old things had passed away. The woman caught in adultery had to know, behold, all things are new. They're no longer, we are no longer defined by circumstances and feelings and successes, past or present, failures. We are now defined by God and God alone, 
We are identified as His. So when we are asked, what are you seeking? I think as I reflect on my identity in Christ, He's helping me shape that answer through the course of my life. We thank you. Amen? I want to close with this statement. This joyful proclamation that was made by Horatius Bonar in, I think, 1867, and he says this. This is the good news, beloved. And, and I think it's important because God's going to use these men. Christ is calling men to Himself. We reflect back on this time and this season. And we look at it and we think, okay, here's this spot in history where God's calling men. He's creating history for us to reflect back on. And we learn from that. But don't fail to remember that we are currently a part of history. God is still calling men. God is still calling women to build His kingdom, to be about His business. And He's placing them, not just lobbing us out, so He's placing us in His history. We're part of what God's wanting to do. These two men aren't a nuisance for following after Christ and asking questions. He doesn't stop and turn around and preach a message and say, guys, you're interrupting my work. He says, no, I am in the process of making history and you're going to be a part of this history. Come and follow me as I place you in history. And we need to know as we read this, this isn't just about what God did with these 12 men. It's about what God's wanting to do with us right now, right here, this day, this time, this church, these people. Horatius Bonar says, If I am a new creature in Christ, then I stand before God not in myself, but in Christ. He sees no longer me, but only Him in whom I am. Him who represents me, Christ Jesus, my substitute and my surety. In believing, I have become so identified with the Son of His love that the favor with which He regards Him passes over to me and rests like the sunshine of the new heavens upon me. In Christ and through Christ, I have acquired a new standing before the Father. Listen, greatest news on the planet. We don't need to hear bigger and better things. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I am accepted in the Beloved. My old standing, that is, that of distance and disfavor and condemnation is wholly removed. And I am brought into one of nearness and acceptance and pardon. I am made to occupy a new footing just as if my old one had never been. Old guilt, heavy as the mountain, vanishes. Old dread, gloomy as midnight, passes off. Old fear, dark as hell, gives place to the joyful confidence arising from forgiveness and reconciliation and complete blotting out of my sin. All things are made new. I am changed in my standing before God. Wow. Those are the beginnings of discipleship. Those are the things that were introduced to these men, common men, 
just like us. They were introduced to these beautiful truths, not to say, okay, now take this, be heroic with the gospel, go change the world. No, so that they would at the end of their lives say, you know what? I know that there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me because of the faithfulness of God. Not based on anything that I've done, but specifically and solely on Him. Wow! Wow! Greatest news on the planet. Let's pray. Father, we need, we need to be reminded. We need to hear this news over and over and over again and again and again, God. Thank You for revealing and then answering. Presenting the problem, but determining the solution. We celebrate you, we celebrate salvation, we celebrate redemption. And I think what we see is a group of men who are changed by the holy affection of God. I pray that that would be the roots of our evangelism, God. That we would invite others because we've been invited. That we would call others just to come and see because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I pray that we would call others to come and be a part of what You're doing in our lives. I pray that our evangelism wouldn't be about everything You're doing wrong, but let it be about everything that God's doing right. So Lord, help us as we pursue You, as we seek to love You, as we, as we seek to know You. And take these beginnings of discipleship, God, and embed them in our hearts, in our spirits, in our minds, and let us view them. Let us view sitting at Your feet and listening to You as a pearl of great price. Let us view a relationship with You as of much value as a treasure hidden in a field. And let us worship You all of our days because You have given us, God, a new identity. And let those truths anchor into the, the, the deepest parts of our heart and let us carry them with us as the precious jewels that they are all of the days of our lives. And when our lives are over and done, and we're preparing to meet You, may we just continue to relish in, in those truths. Everything You've done for us. Everything that You've deposited into our account. Let those truths be our evangelistic tools to reach out to this world. Help us to do that. We love You. We thank You. You are great. We pray these things in Jesus' name.